0: This is uh, the last of the pre-exilic prophets. That is the the last of the nine prophets who are ministering before Judah. The southern kingdom is taken into exile, and Habakkuk is uh, struggling in this book. He is a, a saint of God, and by the way, any um, believer is a saint. So there are are, are not special uh, Christians who we need to make idols of, but any uh, believer who is a believer in Christ Jesus and is born again is um, is automatically a saint. So you can call yourself, and you can call anybody that you know who is a Christian uh, a saint. And in this book, he is struggling with God's seeming silence. It's interesting that many of these prophets that we've been covering are rather obscure. We don't know a lot about them. If someone were to uh, tell us, would you tell me the story of David? Many of us could talk about uh, David and David and Goliath, and we could even talk about David being from Bethlehem, and we could give uh, a rather general, but perhaps... Somewhat expressive outline of David's life, and we could do that with many other Bible characters as well. But when we get to the minor prophets, while we know some things about the minor prophets, there are many things that we simply don't we don't know about them. In fact, even after going through these uh these eight books so far, these eight prophetic works. It's easy to say, well, I think I understand this about this book, and I get this about that book, but if someone were to come to us and say, would you tell us about the prophet Zephaniah, actually lay out his life story, we would struggle because we don't have any information about him. Not much, anyway. And it's the same thing with Habakkuk. We come to Habakkuk, and we have a little bit of information here, in this prophetic work, but we really do not have a lot of information about him. So as people were, as it were, talking to us about the minor prophets and asking us to give a sketch of their lives, we might be able to articulate some of the things about these minor prophets, but there are many things that we simply would not be able to adequately express. In fact, here in this book, it simply says in chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. So he's mentioned here, he's mentioned another time, but that's about it. We get a little bit about him, but really not much about his life. He is rather, like many of the other prophets, he is rather obscure. There's kind of a hiding of these men. We know some things about them, but we don't know a lot of things about them. Why is that? Why? Why is it that that they have these wonderful works, but yet we can't say this is all about Nahum and this is all about Obadiah and this is all about the life of Habakkuk? Why? Why can't we? Why can't we get to that point? These are These are humble men. These are men of true, genuine humility. When we talk about humility, we're not talking about somebody who can never say thank you to a compliment. We're not talking about somebody who just is always off in the distance somewhere hiding in some cave. That's not what humility is. Paul Miller said something interesting, though, about humility. He said, uh, humility makes you disappear. Humility makes you disappear, which is why we avoid it. And if there was ever a case of, of disappearance of men, it's the disappearance of these minor prophets. They simply give their message, and we know something about their names and a little bit about their background, but they simply disappear there's there's a There's a humility about them. Count Zinzendorf, the Moravian bishop, said this. He said, um, "Preach, die, and be forgotten." That was his motto. That's what he would tell those that he was sending out. He would say simply, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. We are thankful that Count Zinzendorf was not completely forgotten, and we have the life stories of many other great men and women of God. But there is something to this. There is something to the disappearance of men. And it's all because their focus in the Minor Prophets was to exalt one person, and that is the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the whole aim of these men. That is is why they are writing in such a way. That is why they are not writing all about their lives, and we know every detail of their lives. They are writing in the Old Testament. Listen carefully. It's not just the New Testament that is about Jesus Christ, but the entire Old Testament from Genesis all the way through, all the way through till Malachi, is all about Jesus Christ. So we have uh, two Testaments. We have the Old Testament. We also have the New Testament. But it's not that the New Testament all of a sudden kicks in and, and is about Christ. No, no. The whole thing is about Christ. So, so here are these men, these humble men they're just simply saying, God, I want, this, I want, the, I want the focus, I, I want the spotlight to be on Jesus. So if we, go these, um, if we go through these minor prophets, and we somehow miss Jesus Christ in these prophets, we have, we have missed the whole point. And there should be some kind of uh, disappearance about our lives as well. When people see us, they say, oh, yes, that's so-and-so. I could tell you something about his or her life. But let me tell you the most important thing about their life. They are a person who is in love. Their identity is found in one person. Their identity is found in this person that they love so much. This person who has uh, transformed their life, has uh, radically uh, transformed them and changed them into a new person, This person's identity can be found and is bound up in one person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. There is this holy, selfless disappearance that says, Lord, may you increase. Lord, I want you to increase. Lord, I want your your name to be exalted. I want my life to be about you. I want want the things that I do, I want my my family to be about Jesus Christ. God, I'm I'm more concerned, as we're even dedicating children this morning, Lord, I'm more concerned about the character and the godly education of my children than I am about the so-called secular education of my children. Lord, my, my aim in life, my prayer for them, oh yes, perhaps maybe someday they will go to some wonderful college and, and Lord, perhaps maybe they will make a, a tremendous impact in society. But Lord, beyond that, if there's one prayer that you answer, Lord, it's that, they may, it's that they may know you. It's that they might, in their lifetime, be found by you and cry out to you. And so every one of these minor prophets is a prophet who is saying, it's not about me. The message that I am writing to you about, The the message that is being given for us to read and to understand, even in the Old Testament, is a a message about Christ. Jesus himself preached this and Jesus himself taught this. If you go to John chapter 5 in your Bibles, John chapter 5, verse 39, John chapter 5, John chapter five. Verse thirty-nine Jesus Jesus here is speaking. And Jesus here clearly says, You search the scriptures. Now, what scriptures did the religious leaders have at this time? They didn't have the New Testament. They couldn't turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John or any of the epistles written by Paul, all they had was the Old Testament. They had the law, they had the writings, and they had the prophets, the three sections, the three categories of the what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus here is telling these religious leaders, he is saying, you search the scriptures, that is, you search the Old Testament because you think that in them you have eternal life. So he's saying you're really good with the Bible. You've gone to to Sunday school, and you're, you're able to quote memory verses. That's good. In fact, you guys have even whole books of the Bible memorized. You're going through the Old Testament. That's a good thing. You know your Old Testament. But Jesus is saying there's a problem. It's good to know the Old Testament, but if you miss the main point of the Old Testament, you've missed the Old Testament. And so he says here, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Here's the problem. It is they, what is, what is they? That is the scriptures. It is they that bear witness about me. So what Jesus is saying is that the Old Testament is about him. You know the scriptures. That's good. You, you, you got them down, but you've missed the main point. That's what he's telling them. Can you imagine? It's good you go to church. It's a good thing. It's good to go to church. It's good to say prayers. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to sing songs. That's a that's a good thing. But Jesus would say to, but if you have, if you've missed the point, if you've missed Christ, if you've missed knowing Christ, you've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point of Christianity. You can know and do all of these different things. That are right and good. But if you miss him, you miss Zephaniah, you miss Habakkuk, you miss Amos, and so on. Verse 40 he says this, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have that you may have life. If you go back to Luke uh, chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus, after he has been raised from the dead, is telling the two on the road to Emmaus. He says here in verse 26, if you go back to verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Lord, how, how, are, how are we to know you were supposed to suffer these things? Lord, how are we to pick up on that? Lord, how how where were we supposed to understand you were uh, supposed to suffer and you were supposed to be crucified and then you were subsequently spo- supposed to be raised into glory to be raised from the dead? Where should we find these things? So he's saying you he's rebuking them gently, but he's saying but you should have understood these things that the Son of Man has to enter into His glory, verse twenty seven. This is where they should have understood it. And beginning with Moses, beginning with Moses, but he doesn't stop there, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So the major prophets, the three major prophets that we have, and the 12 minor prophets, Jesus is saying, not only Moses and the Torah, not only the first five books of the Old Testament are about me, but all of the writings and all of the prophets with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things, here it is, concerning himself. So Jesus is showing, he's opening up to them different passages from the Old Testament. Isn't that profound? Jesus says, you want to know about my life and ministry and my death and my subsequent going into glory. Why don't we go to Nahum and take a look? Why don't we go to uh, Zephaniah? Let's take a look at how I am proclaimed in this work. Let's go to Obadiah and take a look at the way that I am the central figure of all of these Old Testament works, all of the scriptures. So if we were to say, what is the scripture about? We are saying all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. And in these works, in these Old Testament works, we can see his nature. So there are times when we're reading and we're reading Nahum, and it's about the wrath of God. And we say to ourselves, Jesus is a God of love. Yes, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 talk about God being love. But it's not just God the Father, it's also Jesus. If that's what we are understanding, Jesus is also a God of love and a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. We learn things about the nature of Christ in the Old Testament. We learn about his work on our behalf, how he was the one who was going to be cursed for us. Instead of us dying for our sins and going to everlasting punishment in hell, it's Christ who who took the punishment for us. Where, Where do we find that? Where do we understand that? We understand that not only in the New Testament, but in all of the works of the Old Testament, we not only understand his nature, but we also understand his work on our behalf. We also see his example. So when we see the, when we see the prophets prophesying about passion and prayer, we say to ourselves, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was passionate in prayer. He prayed constantly. This is why Paul says, "Pray without ceasing, pray, 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 keep praying. That's what we're going to look at here in Habakkuk just for a second here. So it's not only his nature, his work on our behalf, but it's also his example. Lord, if you prayed, and Lord, if you if you prayed without ceasing, God you are you are calling me, Lord Jesus, you are calling me, I see in the Old Testament your example, and you are calling me to also follow." that example. Let's go through some of these here very quickly. In Obadiah, Jesus Christ is our loyal elder brother. So if you remember in Obadiah, uh, there was a problem with with a brother not being kind uh, to Israel. We have this old fight with Esau and Jacob. And yet here Jesus Christ is the better older brother who's kind to us and even dies for us dies for his brethren. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 29. Romans chapter 8 verse 29. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says this about Jesus. So in Obadiah we have a bad older brother and in Jesus Christ we have a better older brother, a kind one who lays his life down for his Brothers. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So God knew those that he had chosen before the foundation of the earth to come to him. He foreknew them. And uh, by the way, that means to, to foreknow. There means to forelove. It's not just God looking down through a tunnel of time. He foreloved you. He knew exactly that he was going to call you. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This happened before eternity, eternity in the past. In order, here it is, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Obadiah is giving a picture of a bad older brother, and so Jesus would say, you want to see me in Obadiah? Let me, let me tell you a little story here. Esau was a bad older brother, would not help out his brother Israel. And yet I'm the brother who lays his life down for his brethren, for the sheep, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Go over with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Hebrews 2, verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So here is this idea of Christ being our brother. In Joel, we saw that Jesus is the sovereign Lord. We have this plague of locusts and god is saying i i'm god even over the locusts and jesus comes in the New testament and he's lord even over he's lord even over nature look with me at mark chapter 4 mark chapter 4 verse 41 mark chapter 4 verse 41 mark chapter 4 verse 41 says this and they were they were filled with great fear. So here in here in Joel, God is the Lord over nature. Who is the Lord over nature? We see clearly it's Jesus. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we pray because we pray to Christ who is Lord. He's not just Lord over a small territory in the Middle East. But we even pray today, Lord, would you hold off the rain? Who are we praying to? We're praying to Christ. Can he hold off the rain? Absolutely. We say, Lord, would you do this? Would you you take care of this in nature? Why can we pray this? Because he is the sovereign Lord even over nature. Let's go through these quickly. We won't stop for every one of these. But in Jonah, he's the compassionate Savior. He dies for his enemies. Jonah says, I'm not going. I'm not going to go preach. I'm not going to go preach to them. They're mean. They're really mean. And yet Jesus comes and he lays his life down for you and me, his enemies, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, the enemies of Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Amos, he's the just master. You ever have a bad boss? Uh, Somebody who has mistreated you? Bob Dylan used to sing, You've Got to Serve Somebody. And so the question uh, comes down to which master are we going to have? Are we going to continue to serve the world and serve Satan and continue in his realm and in his empire? He's a horrible taskmaster. He abuses and mistreats those who are under him. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a just master who treats us right. Oh, he's the master, he's the Lord the disciples would call him lord they would call him master this is a this is a right thing when we when we get down on our knees sometimes there are, are times that we say jesus and that's that's right we say jesus we were we were singing about this earlier what a name what a powerful there's no more powerful name in the universe than the name of jesus and so we we pray his name but sometimes we say lord and it's an act of submission we get on our, on our knees before him and we just say lord we come to you and we we submit our lives to you again god we come and we recognize you are you are the lord over my life you're the master and you're a just master and you're a good master lord i'm your slave this is this is biblical language lord i come underneath you because i recognize i'm either going to be a slave to the world Or the scripture says, I'm going to be a slave to righteousness. And God, I I choose to come and I, I submit myself underneath your care. So in Amos, Jesus is the just master. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband. The husband who says, I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to give up my life for the bride. This is exactly what Jesus does in the New Testament as he comes and he lays his life down for the church. And marriage, the Bible says, is a picture. This whole thing with marriage, Adam and Eve in the very beginning, God joining them together, is all about this mystery, Paul says. This mystery is all about the faithful relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is the husband to the church. And so oftentimes we walk away from him, we sin. We do things that are wrong, and yet he remains constant. He remains unwavering. He remains unchanging. He remains faithful. Hosea points us very clearly. This is not just about a relationship between Hosea and Gomer. Oh, no, it's much more. Hosea is all about the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ and his people a husband-wife relationship built upon purity and sanctity and sacredness. In Micah, he is our deliverer. He delivers us from all sorts of trouble. In Nahum, he's the one who brings about wrath on his enemies. He covers those who are his own, but he brings wrath on his enemies. In Zephaniah, He is the Lord of the cosmos and he's the Lord of history, not just one part of time. But the scripture says, and it lays it out so clearly in the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. So over and over again in the Old Testament, we are confronted with the fact that all of these minor prophets are specifically about one person, and they bring out with clarity the fact that they are about Jesus Christ. And now we come to Habakkuk. So if you go back to Habakkuk, this is the ninth of of these pre-exilic prophets And if there's anything that's uh, going on, if we were to say that uh, this is exactly what is uh, uh, taking place here in this book, it is a book that is about disappointment with the ways of God. So here is Habakkuk, and he is disappointed with God. Perhaps um, we talk about him, but perhaps there's even people here. Who are, who are disappointed with God. Nehemiah preached before Josiah's reforms. Habakkuk is preaching just after the reforms of Judah. Josiah at this point has probably off the scene. He has just died in 609, and now Habakkuk is preaching. There had been a revival in Judah. But at this point, as Habakkuk is beginning to prophesy and he is beginning to preach, the spiritual condition in Judah is relapsing. So here is this, um, here is this wonderful time that has taken place under uh, Josiah. There had been a revival of sorts, and it was a wonderful time. Many people were coming back to God. But then all of a sudden uh, Josiah dies and the people, instead of continuing to live in these reforms and continuing to go after the things of God, go right back to their old ways. There is still a remnant of people who are serving God and worshiping him. But for the most part, most of the nation is relapsing. They They are going back after the things of the world. We can see that in verses 2 through 4. The key at this point, that is the Babylonians, are on the rise. Assyria, who had been the, the major power up until this point, is falling. Nineveh had fallen in 612. The fall would be complete in 605 as Assyria would, would completely fall to the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is looking at all of this and he's looking at the spiritual condition of Judah and he is just trying to figure out, God, where are you in the midst of all of this? God, you you brought about reforms through Josiah. We saw, we saw your power. Lord, thank you for raising him up. But all of a sudden, Josiah is off the scene and now the question is, where is God? Where is his working and where is his... Power. Look with me at verse 2 of Habakkuk chapter 1. He says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? What do we do when everything is falling apart? What do we do? What do we do when the nation is falling apart? What do we do when things in our life is falling apart? That's the question Habakkuk is asking here. And he is turning to God in prayer. Now, what happens with many people is when things begin to go bad in their life, things start to take a downward trend in their life. Instead of uh, turning to God, they say things are so bad. There was a revival here. God, it seemed like at one point, in my life, you were at work in such a mighty way. God, I can remember 20 years ago, you were so powerfully at work. And now I look back and I go, God, I'm not really sure where you're at anymore. That's what Habakkuk is dealing with. Lord, are you are you in this for the long term? Lord, you're awful silent. Lord, I keep I keep calling out to you. I keep praying to you. And I'm asking you as a believer, I'm your saint. That's what we've just been talking about. Lord, I'm your person. I'm your... I'm your man, but God, I'm not, I'm not hearing anything. So we have, we have two opportunities here. Listen, when things begin to go wrong in our lives, things are starting to fall apart. And we've, we've heard the voice of God in the past. We have, we've experienced the things of God. We've seen revival in our lives and perhaps revival in the lives of others. And now all of a sudden there's the silence of God. All of a sudden, the working of God doesn't seem to be so profound and so powerful anymore. The question is, are we going to turn our back on God? In John chapter 6, many of the people who were following Christ said, you know, we've listened long enough. We appreciate all the things that you've been teaching us, but we're done. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says this, "Are are you going to leave me too? Listen, that's a real question. You know how many people are abandoning God? <coughs> people today are just walking away from God. Now listen, it's, it's because they never had a true root. They never had a true experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they're able to walk away so easily. Do you know how many people with no root who played the religious game for so many years are now saying, you know what, it's getting... It's getting too tough, and I I just I can't stand up for the truth anymore. I'm being being seen as a coward and standing up for righteousness. I'm beginning to be seen as a bigot, and narrow-minded in this culture. We were just talking about Eugene Peterson recently. After so he writes this beautiful paraphrase called the Message. 84 years old, comes out this past week and says, you know what, Uh, I'm for gay marriage. And answers the question and says, uh, the, the person says to him, the interviewer says, would you marry somebody? Would you marry a gay couple? And he says, yes, I would. Later in the week, he recanted that. The question was, was it because they were beginning to pull his books from the shelves in Christian bookstores? There's some question about that. But listen, people everywhere are feeling pressure. And there are, there are there is an easy point in our life where we go, God, we remember the 1970s and you worked so powerfully and it was so profound and it was so wonderful. God, you worked so powerfully in those days. But God, now we pray and we look all around us and it seems like everyone around us is falling. The church is falling apart. Families are falling apart. Lord Jesus, we need you. And the question at that moment is, are you going to continue as Habakkuk does are you going to continue to seek God, or are you going to just say, well, I guess that was a nice ride for a little while. I guess I'm done. There's this, uh, there's this dividing point that is happening all across our land where people are having to make a decision. Am I really going to follow Jesus? Is this really about Christ? Is this really about genuine Christianity? That's the question. The question was, was he going to turn to God, or away from God. Habakkuk made his choice. He was going to continue to pray. But he's not only turning to the Lord, he's turning to the Lord over and over again. It says here in verse two, "O oh Lord, how long? In other words, he's not just praying once and then saying, well, I, I made a prayer. I lifted up a prayer, and uh, and I didn't get my answer, so I'm done praying. I said a prayer and nothing happened. No no that's not that's not Habakkuk's that's not his that's not his uh, operation here at all. He is saying this. He's saying, "Lord, I'm going to come to you again." And again and again. How how long, O oh Lord? Lord, I'm going to keep praying. Jesus said this. He said, "Ask," and in the Greek it's um ask and keep on asking. It's not just ask once. Lord, I'm going to pray in year one. Listen, there there are people right here, right now, and you're praying, and you and you're saying, "But I, I've prayed for a year about this. How long, O oh Lord? Year two. You give up in year two. How long, O oh Lord? Year three. Year four, decade number one." And sometimes uh, the decades turn into one decade and then two decades. And the question is, are we going to uh, we ask and keep on asking? Are we going to knock and keep on knocking? Or are we going to give up? That's the question Habakkuk is asking. Lord, where are you? Why so silent? We close with this. Go back with me to verse 2 and 3. He says, O oh Lord, how, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear, God, I've been asking for the same thing over and over again, but Lord, I'm not hearing anything, or cry to you, violence, Lord, don't you see all this violence that's going on in Judah, don't you don't you get what is going on here, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. Habakkuk is saying, Lord, everywhere I look, there's problems. And he's not just talking about the problems of the nations of the world. He's talking about Judah. Lord, we had this revival, we had this reform under Josiah, but now things are falling apart, and nobody seems to be honoring your word. And Lord, I keep praying. This is what Habakkuk is saying, and I've been praying over and I've been praying over and I've been praying over again. But Lord, all I get from you, all I get is silence. I don't hear anything. I pray, I pray, and I don't hear, I don't hear anything. The question is, the question is, what is, what is the answer to this? What, what do we do in the midst of situations like this? Do we persevere or do we simply, do we simply give up? That's the question. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? We're going to finish this in the coming weeks. We're going to leave it right there. Let me encourage you today to not give up to not give up. I want to ask you a question with every head bowed and every eye closed as we are asking the band to come forward. Perhaps you're, you're praying about something right now and you've been praying and you keep praying and you keep praying and you keep praying, and you keep praying. And you're confronted right now with, a, with the question of how long, oh, Lord. And perhaps you're even sensing with Habakkuk, you're saying, there's been a lot of silence. That's what I'm hearing, silence. Oh, I need the Lord. That's what you're saying. I need an answer. I need an answer. Would you raise your hand? He said, that's me. I need an answer. I need an answer. Hands all over. I need an answer. I need an answer, Lord. I need an answer. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We're already seeing Jesus in this book because we know that he didn't give up. Lord, he came and he said, I I long to do your will, O God. I long to do your will. My, My desire, O Lord, is to do your will. God, would you give strength today for perseverance? Lord, we can say as Christians, oh, Christians don't wrestle with these problems. We just always get instant answers and we just walk around whistling and and no issues, never any doubts. Lord, I pray today for that one who is saying, Lord, I I need an answer. And I've, I've not just been praying for six months, but Lord, I've been praying over and over and over again. Lord, I pray as we continue through this book that you would give strength for the weary, that we would look to you and we would not grow faint that we would continue to remain steadfast, even under pressure and under intense circumstances, God. You're the God who does not grow weary. You're the God who does not faint. You're the God who knows what he's doing, exactly what he's doing every moment. And so, Lord, we just surrender all these things to you. We surrender all these things to you.